really grateful. Well, you should see the other guy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, the doctor this week, I went to a, another podiatrist, and the doctor gave me a gift of six weeks in a boot with no weight on my foot. But what he doesn't know yet, I'm assuming, is I also gave him a gift. So you know when you have to fill out the paperwork when you go to the doctor, and you have to say the same stuff on like eight different forms? You know what I'm talking about? You'd think by now there'd be some way to like put all that in there. So on the question of race, it just said race question mark. I thought, do I say what he's expecting me to say or something different? And I thought, because I'm at the podiatrist, here's what I said. Not very fast right now. <laughs> so I cannot wait to see when they're flipping through the chart and go, wait, so my race is not very fast right now. All right. We've been in the series the last couple of weeks where we're studying the parables of Jesus. And I have to admit that parables can be kind of difficult because they're, they're stories. They're not, they're not explicit in the way that a simple story is. As a matter of fact, Jesus at one time said, I spoke in parables uh, so you would get this, but others wouldn't get it. So they could be a little bit tricky to interpret. But, but parables really are stories with a meaning. And really to often it's to jar a listener to learn something new about the, the economy of the kingdom of God. And they, they were a bit jarring to the original listeners. Remember, they, they heard them first. Because they challenged conventional wisdom at the time. And most of them, they have a twist or an aha moment of some kind. And so to understand parables, we really have to dig in and understand the culture uh, and the dominant thinking they were birthed into to try to find the, the principles. What is it that Jesus really is trying to say in these? And then we have to try to bring it into our own day and age. So they can be a little bit difficult. And so... Because they can be a little bit difficult, and I knew I was preaching today, I scoured the scriptures to find the easiest parable to understand, and that's what I'm talking about. No, I'm not talking about that one today. I'm actually going to walk through a parable that's actually considered a complex, care, uh, complex parable, because there are four characters that we see, but really they're treated as three, and there's a surprise twist at the end. And so we're going to walk today through one of my favorite parables. It's the parables of the talents. And so take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, or go to the Bible app or to the website and pull that down. Matthew 25. The parable of the talents is a part of three parables that have some themes where people are waiting for the arrival of someone special, a master or whoever it might be. And then also a picture of what the appropriate behavior for these people during the waiting should be. And all three finish with a strong depiction of judgment. And I'll be honest and say they're fascinating and they're, they're amazing to read until you get to the very last part. And I remember when I went, I'm going to do the parables of the talent. So I got it out and I reread it. And oh, I really like it. Oh, it's interesting. Uh-oh. At the very end, like harsh judgment parts. And it'd be a lot easier to teach it without that. But I think there's an important lesson in the judgment language of these three parables that I don't think we should gloss over. And so what I want to do today is I want to take you verse by verse through the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. I want to point out some practical things we can observe along the way uh, and then end with some ways that we can reorient our hearts to the way uh, of Jesus. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Lord, today our hearts are tender for you to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. God, I just would pray, Holy Spirit, that you speak through your scriptures to us, that we might continue to live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, let's dive in. Matthew 25, verse 14. You ready? Buckle up. Let's go. All right. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now, it was really common in the ancient Near East, just like it is today, if someone was really wealthy, to travel. How many of you like to travel? I love to travel. I am not wealthy, but if I ever became wealthy, part of what I would leverage my wealth for is to travel. But when someone did this in the ancient Near East, they would designate somebody to be the caretaker of their wealth. And so we see this man pull together three servants and entrust his wealth to them. And then we see in verse 15 that he gave five bags of gold to one and two bags of gold to another. And how many bags to the third? One. Some translations use the word talents. And many scholars believe that a talent was equivalent to something like 20 years of a day laborer's wages. 20 years of wages. So let's do some math. Sir, how much do you make a year? I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask that. The point really isn't exactly how much money that it was. It was just saying it was a lot of money, like a huge amount of money, all right, um, and resources. So look at verse 15, though, again. It says, each according to his own ability. Now, in the Greek, the word that's used for ability is the word dunamis. Would you say that with me? See, you just went to seminary. What does that word sound like, dunamis? Keep going. Bang. Dynamite. The word dynamite, explosive. Dunamis is ability. Think about it like this. Dynamite has explosive potential, doesn't it? If you hold a stick of dynamite in your hand and you light the little thing, I do not recommend this as a disclaimer, children, but if you do that, what happens? Boom. The word dunamis is translated a number of different ways. Talents, abilities, explosive potential. And it's almost like the master here is looking at the servants for their potential, their, their latent explosive ability, the ability they had to take something and do something with it. And here's the truth. God looks at every person, you, me, all of us included, not just at who they are today, but for the potential he created them to have. Make sense? So he looked at these people. He entrusted his wealth. And the bottom line is this. The kingdom of God is expanding. It's at work. And he invites all of us to partner with him in this and expects us to leverage who we are for his work. Now, because we're human, it's pretty easy to look at somebody else and the things that they've been entrusted with and to compare. I got my hair cut a couple days ago, and, and the guy that greeted me at the door had this flowing mane of, it was like Simba the lion, awesomeness up there. And I don't know if you have noticed, but I don't have a lot to work with up here. And so when they said, what do you want us to do? I said, I want that. <laughs> and they looked at me like, I, and I was like, I'm just kidding. I get you're not going to be able to do that. Uh, I think I got close, though. But it's easy to look at someone else and go, they have a better hair than me, or this person sings better than me, or he makes more money, he has more stuff than I do, or this sentence, I wish I were more like, and fill in the blank. Who's with me? We can get so caught up in the comparison game that, that we can focus more on what we don't have than being faithful with what God has given to us. And, and the other thing that I think is really interesting is that the master gives them portions of wealth and entrusted it to them according to their own ability, and then he told them exactly what to do with it, didn't he? 
No, he didn't. Isn't that interesting? I'd never really thought about that before, that he didn't give them money and then give them a checklist and a lengthy, like, call this investment advisor and, you know, I want you to go into these four pots to, to get more money. He didn't do that. He just simply gave them the money, and then what does the scripture say? And then he got out of town. Why? Well, I think it's because he trusted that the servants knew him. They knew his heart. They knew how he wanted to operate in the world and that they would use the money accordingly to continue his good work. Now, I I don't know about you, but God has not appeared to me and given me an explicit list of this is what I want you to do with the resources that I've given you. How about you? Sometimes God does. Sometimes God does say, do this. But a lot of times, God entrusts us with everything that we have. That's why when we do giving back, we say, every good gift comes from the Father. God gives us everything, and that's why we we return a portion of it back as as a symbol that everything we have is God's. But God doesn't always say exactly, explicitly what to do with it. But I will say, the scriptures are pretty clear about the basics, aren't they? I mean, we should know, feed the hungry. We should do that. We should clothe the poor. We should take care of the widow and the orphan. We should meet the needs of one another. But if we aren't exactly sure what to do to to manage all that God entrusted us. I was, I was struck by this provocative quote by Dallas Willard. He says, in many cases, our need to wonder about or be told what God wants in a certain situation is nothing short of a clear indication of how little we are engaged in his work. Wow, that's a painful indictment. But beyond that, think about it like this. We should know the way in the heart of Jesus so deeply that managing his resources well is second nature. I'm going to say that again because I want you to think about this because this is sort of the big idea today. We should know the way and the heart of Jesus so deeply that managing his resources well is second nature. Now, if you're not sure what to do with what God's given you for for God's work, press into Jesus, to Jesus' way and his heart. Get to know the master and you'll discover exactly what to do with what God entrusts you. Now let's see what each person did with their money. Verse 16. So the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. And so also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. And then look at what happens to number three. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And I have to admit that when I was a kid, I I read this, and I thought, now that third guy, he's got the right idea, right? I mean, why? Because it was safe. I know people who lived through the Great Depression and hiding money was a surefire way to keep it safe unless the house burned down, right? How many of you have heard the stories where someone buys an old home and they decide to renovate it, put in a new kitchen, new living or whatever they're doing, and they find a bunch of money in the walls, right? That's because someone put that money there. I do want to say that if that's you, don't forget to tithe, okay? I'm just kidding. The reason they did that is because it was safer than the banks. And seriously, it seems kind of risky for these, these, no, no, I'm talking to Siri. Siri thought I was talking to her. Okay, it was kind of risky for the first two guys to save, take the money and do something with it. And you might even say it seemed a little bit frivolous. And the Greek here implies that they somehow invested in the marketplace. I, I don't know if they started a business of some sort. Maybe they were in the ground floor of Facebook or what. I don't know exactly what they did, but somehow they put the money to work. Now, first century listeners listening to this, they probably would have responded exactly like I did, thinking that the guy that buried the money was the prudent one. 
the one that did the wise thing. And the banking system in the first century, it, it was fairly new at the time. There was great distrust of it. Some people believed that you shouldn't be putting stuff into the bank. And so most hearers probably heard this story and rolled their eyes at the first couple of guys and affirmed the guy who played it safe. But remember, parables were designed to challenge conventional wisdom, to flip the thinking of the world on its head and for Jesus to introduce the economy of the kingdom. And so in a bit, we're going to start seeing how that conventional wisdom was flipped on its head. Verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And, and we don't know how long this was, but I will say this. After an exhausting uh, study of the Greek here, I've discerned that, the, that a long time means a long time. A fair chunk of time. And so the master returned and basically asked for an account of what he had done with this money. And, and at first, we see the ones with five bags and the ones with two bags of gold report out. And really, this is what, what's interesting is those two characters really serve as one character in the story because they did the same thing and the response from the master was the same. Look at verse 20. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Same thing with the next guy. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. So, so this master entrusted his stuff to other people to manage it well, and they were able to double the resources that he had given them. They leveraged their ability, that dunamis power, their, their potential, their understanding of the way and the heart of the master to double the impact of his resources. And so the master rewarded them in a couple of different ways. First, he probably threw a huge party and they were his guests of honor. Who doesn't like a great party? But catch this. He also noticed that they'd been faithful to manage his resources well, didn't he? With what they'd been given. And so the master put them in charge of more. Now the, mas the, the message, the paraphrase by Eugene Peterson says, from now on, be my partner. The account, the Lucan account of this same parable says you've been faithful with 10 cities, essentially now rule over an entire region. Are you getting the picture? I gave you just a little bit and you did well with it and now I'm going to give you more responsibility, more ability to do that because he trusted that their heart was rooted in his heart and they doubled their resources for the good of his kingdom. Now, I'm sure like you, there are areas of my life that I think sometimes like, God, why won't you just give me XYZ to manage. I want more. I want more of this thing. Like, you know, this kind of car. I'll manage that car really well or this kind of house or whatever it might be. And that especially happens for me when I see others around me having more than I do. And I find myself sometimes feeling jealous of, of what they get to do or manage. And if we're honest, I think all of us have been there at some point in our life. But if I'm honest, I can also point to areas of my life that I wish God would give me more responsibility and would give me more to, to piggyback off of. But I also know I'm not doing a real good job managing that. And if I'm not managing that little thing well, why on earth would God entrust his resources, precious resources, to me in that area of my life? I think it's important that we learn here and that we do an inventory of our own lives. If you want more, 
If you want to manage more, then manage what you have well and stop comparing what you have with what God has entrusted to someone else. Several years ago, I was in Bangkok uh, working with the church there, and I had the privilege of touring the slums there. Now, the king of Thailand at the time, who's since passed away, had given a, a small strip of land right in the heart of the city to people there. And, and they were very, very poor. And as we toured, it was shocking. I mean, people lived in these tiny little lean-to shacks. And I found myself feeling so sad for them. I mean, kids were playing with, like, sticks in the dirt. That's all they had. They didn't have nice houses. They had these little huts that they put together with old tin and, and different things. And they'd set up their own, like, little marketplace. But the jarring thing was, as I navigated through this space and I saw what was happening there, I saw that people who had essentially nothing, according to our standards, were happier than most people that I know, myself included. And I saw how they, they cared for one another. I mean, they were experiencing community, friends. Like, I have never seen it before. They weren't all about stuff that they had. They were about who they had, the resources among them. And they were leveraging that for the good of this tiny little beautiful community. And it wasn't a situation where they saw us coming through like, Lord, couldn't you just give us more like this rich white person here? That's not what their posture was. It was them being faithful with what they had, including hospitality and kindness. And I will say that trip left an indelible mark on my soul. So I think we should all ask the question, how am I doing with managing what God has given to me? And I'm going to just encourage you to write that down. And to spend some honest time with Jesus asking, Lord, how am I doing with managing what God has given to me? Now, hopefully by now it's clear that we have a responsibility to leverage the potential, the, the power, the resources that God has given us for the good of God's kingdom. But now let's pivot a little bit and let's look at the third guy, starting in verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Wow. You know, it's really interesting if you pull back just a little bit to see the perspective of this third person and how different his perspective of the master is from the first two. Did you catch that? He believed the master to be a hard man who harvested where he didn't sow or, or gathered where he didn't scatter seed. And his perspective of the master was completely different than the others. And you'd sure think that if the other two thought this about the master, if they, if they saw the master the same way as, as guy number three did, they would have been far more careful with the money that they've been entrusted with. Does that make sense? It's like they viewed the master in a way that gave them the freedom to invest his resources. You know, maybe they felt safe with him, or maybe they felt like he trusted them, or that he really wanted the best for them, or, or maybe they felt like they knew his heart so well that they knew exactly what to do with the resources that were given to them. And it's clear from the scripture that the, ma that the third guy, he did not view the master that way. He thought the master was unethical and harsh and mean. And so his experience of the master was birthed out of the way he saw the master. I have a lot of friends who grew up thinking that God was angry with them. Anybody bold enough to say, I have felt that in my life at some point? Look around you. Look at all the hands coming up. 
And the people that felt like God was angry with them, the thing that's really interesting is that meant that their experience of God, their experience of God was that of an angry God, always out to get them. The hammer's about to drop. Maybe you can relate. You know, last week, Ryan said something great. He said, the way you see yourself shapes everything else. And I agree with that 100%. And what I want to do is expound upon that because make no mistake here, friends. Listen, our theology of God will greatly impact how we experience God. Take a picture of that, write it down, and chew on it. Our theology of God, the way we see God, what we believe to be true about God will greatly impact how we experience God. And if the gospel is simply God is angry and wrathful toward us because we're sinners, and unless we pray some sort of sinner's prayer and accept Jesus, it's easy to form an opinion that God is an angry God. And that presupposition influences how we read all of the scriptures, especially the Old Testament. So when you see people saying the Old Testament God was really, really angry, but then Jesus came and now God can be nice because of Jesus, that came from their perspective of who God is. Does that make sense? My grandma gave me a Bible when I was 10 or 11, uh, and I sat in my room and I read it because I'm a nerd from cover to cover. Wasn't going to church regularly, I just read the scriptures. And from reading it, I formed this idea that God was loving and loved me unconditionally. That God invited me into a relationship with him, into the family of God, so to speak. That's sort of the conclusion that I, that I came to on my own. And it wasn't until a few years later, when I started attending church regularly, that I started hearing how mad God was. And hearing how much God hated sin and hated sinners. And that was some of the language that I heard. And it was perplexing to me. I, I couldn't get it. And it wasn't until even years later, as I've been a pastor now for almost 23 years, listening to story after story of people whose image of God is one who's against them. I want you to look at this popular meme uh, that's been posted. It says, this is Jesus. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's Jesus. Let me in. Why? I have to save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. This is how so many people see God. And it's funny, but it's sad. If the gospel for people is simply a get out of hell card versus an invitation to the beauty of God's kingdom, no wonder they have a short-sighted view of their responsibility within the kingdom of God. I'm going to say it one more time. Our theology of God will greatly impact how we experience God. Some of my charismatic friends, they seem to have this insanely intimate experience with God. How many of you know someone who is a charismatic person? Or maybe you are. I have so many friends that judge those people for them being all about the experience of God. But I've often wondered, even since I was a child, if the reason we don't experience God fully is because our theology of God is so limited. And for those who experience God more fully as a loving, generous God, it's because that's their view of God. The first two people clearly defined the master, saw the master differently than the third, and their view of their master defined their actions. They took risks, and they were rewarded, and the last one played it safe. And let, let's turn and sort of see what happened. And this is where the twist happens here. Now, remember how I said parables have a, a twist that rattles people and shifts their perspective from the economy of the world to the economy of the kingdom? Remember that part? Now we're at the point in the story where we see the twist. I mean, listeners would probably already be going, wait a second, when they realized uh, that the risk takers were rewarded so heavily. And then it gets really crazy. And let's look at the master's response starting in verse 26. 
His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I have received it back with interest. Holy cow, like what a response. This is the verse that when I got to this, I went, I don't want to preach this. Uh, what's the verse about Jesus and the little children? I'm going to do that one, okay? <laughs> this is a little bit difficult. I love how Eugene Peterson in the, in the message, he has this poetic way of unpacking this, and I, and I think it's a great way to see it. I'm going to reread this from the message paraphrase. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If I knew, if you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Do you see him? See, the master never says, you're right, I'm a terrible person. He doesn't say it in Luke either. The master doesn't say, I'm the horrible villain that you said. He simply piggybacks off what the third person believed about him. And the master is essentially saying, look, if you really believe that that's who I was, why didn't you at least try to get some kind of safe results by putting it in the bank and getting a little bit of interest? You knew I would want some sort of return. Why wouldn't you operate that way? And see, the third person's view of the master was so limited. It was so skewed that he chose to play it safe, to not live out the economy of the kingdom, but to live with scarcity thinking, and that caused him to be punished for it. See, people with a ton of baggage, and we all have baggage, we all have pain, we all have child, family of origin stuff, we have all these things that influence how we see our master. Did you know that? And when we have that, and we don't deal with it, we view the world through the lenses of our stuff. Someone once said, if you don't transform your pain, you'll transmit it. If you don't transform your pain, you'll transmit it. And often we project onto others and we vilify other people. And I've seen people play the constant victim because they're not being honest about how the condition of their heart influences the way they see other people. And they unfairly vilify other people because of the lens that they're seeing people through. And we do this to God too, don't we? Often we, we make God into our own image of God instead of seeing God for who God really is. And seeing God incorrectly can lead to a really miserable, empty, scarcity-oriented life. And look what the master said about this. Verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him, from the one who buried it, and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside. That's harsh language. Into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is some of the, the hardest, harshest language we see Jesus saying. He's essentially saying this. My will is going to be accomplished one way or another. The kingdom economy will be established. The good news of the shalom of the kingdom is going to happen. And those who manage the resources I entrust them, I'm going to give more to them because it's so important to me. From my character, who I am, what I've established since the dawn of creation, is, is healthy and shalom in this world. I'm going to give them more to do that. But the one who lives with a scarcity mentality won't receive the best of the kingdom and will be judged accordingly. Again, I think Eugene Peterson translates this beautifully. Take the thousand, he says, and give it to the one who risks the most and get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. 
it's clear to me that God's economy of grace, of, of the kingdom, is quite different than the world's economy. And hopefully you're seeing that by now. Read Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is such a beautiful uh, passage um, of Scripture. And Paul sort of gives instructions on how to live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, uh, in, in a dark and hurting world. And he uses this, uh, this, this language of make the most of every opportunity because the days are dark. He's calling us as followers of Jesus to leverage everything we have to push back darkness and to bring the kingdom down here as it is up there. So what I want to do today, I want to end by unpacking four things to chew on that we can chew on and learn from this in order to to be who God created us to be and to live out the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And I want to encourage you to write these down and to put them in your heart and process these in the, in the week to come. The first thing I want to challenge us to do is to make sure our view of God is healthy. Make sure our view of God is healthy. If do you... God is the angry, mean taskmaster. I'd love to invite you to consider maybe another way of looking at God. And the best picture of God that we have is what? Louder. Jesus. Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. What happened? Jesus moved into the neighborhood, right? Jesus is the best image we have. And I love how Pastor Brian Zahn says this. He says, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. What if we were to the kind of church that was so immersed in the life and the teaching of Jesus, so familiar with his way and his heart that, that we read all of Scripture through that lens? What if we allowed the words and the teaching of Jesus and his character to define our image of who God is and what God is like? For some of us, reorienting our heart in the way of the kingdom starts by changing our view of who God is. The second thing, and this one feels a little bit uncomfortable probably, but that is get to know who God made you to be. I took a personality profile test about 10 years ago that absolutely changed my life. And I had always sort of wished, I always felt like I was wired a little bit different than other people and that people had sort of put me in a box and that drove me bananas. And I was like, I wish I could just go to like some, some kind of psychologist and get an interview and they would print out this report. This is you, you know, like a robot or whatever. And, um, but what I wanted to know is like, how am I wired and, and how do I see the world and why and how can I best contribute to God's kingdom? And so I, I took this test uh, 10 years ago and um, that test opened the door for me for some massive self-discovery of what I was good at, what I was not good at, how I could bring the most value to things, what gives me the most joy on and on it goes. And as I was reading it, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. So I started learning a lot about myself. Fast forward a couple of years, and I was in a season of my life where I was really into screenwriting. I was into screenwriting and filmmaking, and I was entering competitions and writing sitcom pilots and doing all these sorts of crazy things. And I have a friend of mine who wrote this film, um, and it was, he was making this film, and he called me and he said, would you like to come to the set of this film for three weeks and be sort of our social media documentary and like common like post on Twitter and Facebook or whatever about this and sort of keep people in the loop. Behind the scenes, like on the set, taking pictures and posting it and getting people excited. It sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? And I will say that it's like two, three years before that, I would have been like hook, line, and sinker into this. But the thing is, I had spent so much time sort of trying to figure out who I am 
and how I'm wired, but instantly I was able to look at that and go, if I do that, we're both going to end up frustrated because I haven't even updated my own blog in months, right? Okay, so I, I didn't have to think about what the right thing to do is. I knew myself well enough to know that that clearly were, wasn't where I should be investing my time. Does that make sense? I'm still discovering who I am, but I consider it a part of learning to live in the way of Jesus with his heart, to do the hard work of self-discovery, to, to do as Jesus would do if Jesus were you. I love the words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are the product of his hands, heaven's poetry etched on lives, created in the anointed Jesus to accomplish the good works God arranged long ago. This means that you're beautifully made to do God's good work in the kingdom of heaven. And I so want you to get to know who God made you to be so that you can accomplish the good works God arranged for you long ago. And it's clear to me that God's desire is that we so know the heart of Jesus and the way of Jesus so intimately and how God has wired us so intimately that making decisions about what to do with our time and our money and our finances and our energy and all that sort of stuff um, would be absolutely obvious. And some of us, we've got a lot of work to do in this. Believe me, I know. I've worked with a lot of people over the years who have no clue who they are. I just don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know why I'm here. Maybe you can relate. And so maybe for you, you should take something like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or maybe you should pursue uh, getting a spiritual director or a coach or something like that. And I will tell you that our team here at South is really committed to doing our part to help everyone in this room and everyone that's a part of our tribe become aware of who God created them to be. And we've been working really hard behind the scenes on some things we're going to roll out this fall that I'm losing my mind excited about that I think is going to help people discover who God made them to be so they can partner in the very best way with God's mission here at South. Who's excited about that? So we should reframe how we see God. We should learn to see ourselves. The third thing is we should put our faith into practice. Years ago, I went through this obsessive time reading the scriptures, and I listened to all sorts of verse-by-verse -verse teaching everywhere I went. I was listening to these different teachers, and I bought all these commentaries, and I did exhaustive studies of books of the Bible, and I mean, I could just unpack the Hebrew and the Greek and all this sort of stuff. I knew a lot. And one, one day, my friend Clay took me to lunch, and he looked at me right in the eye, and he said, Larry, you're getting spiritually fat. I had the same reaction. I was a little bit taken aback, but he went on to tell me that he had been observing this process and that I knew a ton. I was listening to sermons, man. I was exegeting the scriptures. I could tell you all this crazy stuff and all these commentator sort of theories and all this sort of stuff, but that it was time for me to leverage what I knew into action, into allowing God to use me for his glory. And I will say that that conversation changed my life. And it helped me realize that just showing up on a regular basis and listening to great sermons and reading the Bible all day long isn't all that following Jesus is all about. And just like in the earlier parables, the ones who's rewarded here in this story are the people who put in the effort, who are at work when the master returns. Those are the people who put in the effort. And I firmly believe that the economy of the kingdom of God is one that seeks to leverage God's resources for maximum impact and to put our faith into action. And so church, look at me. I want to say if God's blessed you with just a little bitty bit, then use a little bitty bit you have for God's glory and for his kingdom. If God's blessed you with a lot, then use the lot you have for God's glory and his kingdom. 
It's not enough to just know a lot about the Bible. It's not enough to just say all the things about God or to just attend church. Following Jesus, living in his way, with his heart, requires that we put our faith into action. That we love one another, that we serve one another, that we put others before ourselves, that we stand up for one another, that we're a voice for people who don't have a voice, that we are generous and kind with one another, and that we seek to bring God's shalom, listen, into every facet of creation for God's glory and for the benefit of every single person. That is us on mission with God. Now, for those in this room who are saying, well, that sounds a lot like works, I really appreciate that. And I'm going to go to Dallas Willard again because he's smarter than me. And you can't argue with Dallas Willard. So here's what Dallas Willard says. We might say this is dangerous because it could lead to works. But listen to what he says. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with the forgiveness of sins alone. Effort, our effort, doesn't earn favor with God. It's not about now because we did all this stuff, now salvation is secure. That's not what it's saying. It's simply the outworking of our faith, and it shows that we are choosing to partner with God's mission in the earth. Our mission itself is to what? Help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And we believe that if we're living in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, we're really doing it well, we'd be consistently growing in being with Jesus, spending time with Jesus. We'd be uh, consistently growing and becoming like Jesus. That people would look and see us becoming like the Jesus that we see in the scriptures. And we would consistently be growing in doing as Jesus did. That's the picture of what our mission statement realized looks like in your life. And we're going to work really hard we're working hard. We are excited to pour more gas on this to help you be very clear what it looks like to live in his way with his heart, to become like Jesus, to do as Jesus did, to live out our faith. That's the way of the kingdom. And finally, the fourth thing, don't be afraid to take a risk. I've done all kinds of personality assessments and, uh, and worked with a lot of other people, and, and there's one ruling, like, what, what is your risk tolerance. If you sit down with a financial advisor, one of the questions they're going to say is, how risk-averse are you? So they can determine where to put your money with investments. Um, one of the hard things about this set of parables is, that when, is the idea that when the master returns, his subjects are asked to give an account of what they did with what they've been given, and they'll be judged accordingly. And I think if we're honest, listen, if we're honest, some of us have squandered our opportunity to be used by God at various times because we were afraid or we weren't willing to take a risk, or because we didn't invest the time to get to know Jesus in his heart and to partner with it. Or we simply believe that God can't use us. God's not going to use me. And so we tell ourselves those stories. One commentator said that the, the third character in this story, it was his timidity and lack of enterprise that caused him to be condemned. Now look, not everybody in this room is wired as an entrepreneur, and I fully realize that. And we all have a different range um, of tolerance for risk. I get that. But Jesus never preached, like you show me from Scripture, did Jesus ever say, behold, I say unto you, accept me into your heart. He didn't say that. We say that. He did speak an enormous amount about the kingdom of heaven being near, didn't he? And those parables, these parables that we're unpacking in this series, were part of the way that he illustrated what life 
in the kingdom would be like. And it wasn't a someday maybe kind of thing. It was the kingdom is here. Behold, the kingdom is near. John the Baptist said it. Jesus said it for a reason. The kingdom is here. It's happening. It's not someday Jesus comes back, and so we should just huddle and hide until Jesus comes back. That's not what it is. He showed us his heart, his way, his kingdom, and it was different than the normal way of doing things. And for all of us, living in that way might ask us to do things that might seem like risky behavior to people who don't get it. Are you with me? You know, some people are called to sell everything they have and to move overseas and to minister to people around the globe. You know, some people, God might ask you to do something crazy and get to know your neighbors. You know, God might ask some of us to befriend people that society deems unlovable. God might ask you to go serve populations nobody else wants to serve. I once left a church uh, in an incredible situation at a new house, and all these things were really, really amazing. But I felt like God was leading me to step out, take a risk, and follow him in a different way. And several of my friends told me as I did this, you're making the worst decision of your life. But I will tell you, God showed up and did things in me through that process I never could have dreamed of. I love that there are people in this church who are uncommonly generous and kingdom-minded. And, and I think of people in this community uh, like the Penningtons. I admire you guys because you have done a lot of what is on this list, actually. Uh, they've moved overseas and have served selflessly. And now that they live here and have for the several years, they make their home available to people. I've seen them mentoring other people, hosting block parties for their neighbors. I think about um, people who are mentoring marriages. And they're uncommon investment. I think about um, Nicole and her team that give of their time every Tuesday night to journey with those with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Listen, friends, none of those things are convenient. But I'm convinced of this. God doesn't always call us to convenience. He calls us to be consistent with the heartbeat of the kingdom. Say it again. God doesn't always call us to convenience. He calls us to be consistent with the heartbeat of the kingdom. So I want to say to you, South Fellowship Church, you're going to hear a lot from me on this stage and from others on this stage, uh, inviting you to bring your best self to this church and to this city and to this world. And I'm going to continue to ask you to align who you are and what God has blessed you with for the good of God's beautiful kingdom, to leverage those things for the shalom we have the joy of partnering with Jesus to bring to a hurting, broken world. Imagine if we were the kind of church that took so seriously the call to get to know Jesus intimately enough to get to know who God made us to be so intimately and to pay attention to our hurting, broken world around us so intimately that we leverage everything that we had to be used by God and to let his kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if it wasn't just the Lord's prayer that we said? What if we lived it as a church? That, I think, is a beautiful picture of a healthy church on mission with God. And I believe that's the kind of church God has been forming here and is going to continue to form. And so I'm just going to ask, what about you? Look at the four things that, that I gave you again. I want you to ask yourself, what is one step I can take this week to leverage what God has entrusted with me with for his kingdom? What's one thing I can do this week to leverage what God has entrusted me with for his glory? for his name, for the good of others. Maybe it's spending some time 
reading the Gospels, seeing the character, the nature, the teaching of Jesus, and reorienting yourself to who God really is. Maybe it's taking some personality tests or getting a, a life coach or a spiritual director and doing some discovery about who you are and how God's wired you and how God wants to use you. Maybe it's taking steps to put your faith into practice. And maybe for some of us, as scary as this might sound, it might be taking a risk. Let's pray. Lord, I love that the scriptures are so challenging sometimes, even though it's scary. I love that you invite us into something so compelling and so beautiful. My prayer today, God, is that you would speak to this community about who you are, who we are, what you want us to do, and how you might allow us to leverage everything we have for your good name, for your kingdom, for the hope of the world. I pray you'd give people in this room wisdom. Wisdom to know what step to take. That they might see themselves through your eyes. That the lenses that are smudged and seeing things incorrectly would be wiped clean. That the, the economy of the kingdom, the economy of grace would be the economy we all submit to under your lordship, Jesus. Lord, it's our honor to serve you, to follow you. We ask all these things in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Together, this beautiful church together said, there's one more thing I want to give you before you go. Inside your service guide or on your chair is this card for stories. And we're spending this whole month looking for your story. We're just, we know we hear from people that God is moving in their lives, maybe through a sermon series or through a small group or through Celebrate Recovery, or maybe it was from an event, whatever that might be. Uh, maybe it was from your student being impacted on a mission trip to Mexico or you being impacted by the faith of your student who went on a mission trip. God is at work at South, and we want to hear just how God is moving in your life. And I'd love it if you'd just take a few minutes and fill out that card. You can drop it off in baskets on your way out the door. Um, and we're going to celebrate together in a few weeks as we take some intentional time. We're going to take some time as a community to celebrate what God has done over this past year and to pray together about what we believe God is going to lead us into in the year to come. You can also email us, stories at southfellowship.org. If you are new or newish, South and Five is right over here to my 